Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. In this week's New Statesman podcast, I get very irate about the EEA. For the first time anyone has ever been irate about the EEA. And then George and Jason join me to talk about this week's issue, Who Speaks for Liberal Britain? And you ask us, what do we think about the Labour Leave MPs? So? So, you must be pretty upset about Douglas Carswell leaving UKIP. Um... I mean, to be honest, this, I'm, it's obviously it's hilarious to see Matt Douglas Carswell making an arse of himself, right? Because until this week, people would go, oh, but, you know, you can't take away from Carswell's principles, right? And, oh, he's got an amazing personal vote. I've actually written at length about why he doesn't have a, a personal vote. Um, it took a great deal of time and was very depressing because it involved going through every single conservative gain that was made by the Tories in 2005 and um, and looking at the increase. Because the original foundational myth of Douglas Carswell, he's so principled, he's got a great personal vote, is the massive increase in his vote from 2005 to 2010. Now, obviously, there was a fairly big change in the fortunes of the Conservative Party from 2005 to 2010. But outside of that, every Conservative who won uh, a seat from Labour in 2005 had a massive increase in their majority out width of the national swing, other than one, David Mundell, uh, in Scotland, where obviously he had the slight drag on the ticket that Labour had swapped Tony Blair for Gordon Brown, who was at the time the most popular politician in Scotland. The weird thing about the fact that we have now formally begun to leave the EU is I kind of just feel... feel Douglas Carswell just feels so small and beneath me now, right? Like... Well, on that note, let me bring in our secret lurking hidden guest, which is John Elledge, who has joined us in the podcast Catacomb. Um, John, I feel bad in some ways that I might have driven you mad by commissioning you to write a column about Daniel Hannan, which for one week only you veered into Douglas Carswell, right? No, everything's fine. <laughs> everything's completely fine. Is but that why you're dead? I've never felt bad. <laughs> but but as as Stephen says, do you now think? Can you let go of your Hannon hatred now that it's it's triggered? Does he seem a small a small figure to you? I mean, I there is a, a fun thing with Carswell where like his his career's over, right? Like the Tories are not going to have him back. They will probably take his seat in 2020 just to kind of prove the point that UKIP is no threat. 
He's not going to get a TV career, is he? Bless him. He's just, he's not that guy. Um, so he's going to end up joining one of those really sinister American think tanks called like, you know, the Freedom Institute or something, which is all about making people put, because I can't see Keto. what else he's going to do. Yeah, he's, the Henry Jackson, the Henry Jackson Society. Society. What else is Whatever he going to do is. with his life? He's, he's like 44 or 45 and he's on the scrap heap. So, you know, he, he's, he's won, but he's also terribly, terribly lost. Daniel Hannan, though, has also won... And Hawthorne is blooming here. at St Crispin's Day in you know across the world. Obviously, his job as an M. I mean, self, I mean, the guy is selfless, right? Selflessly staying in the he's, European Parliament, he's still cashing the, those checks, even though he really fervently disagrees with them. Hates it, can't bear it. You know, every time he goes to the bank and checks his enormously inflated balance, I bet a little a little tear forms in the corner and, of his and eye. And it's got bigger because he he took his salary in euros. So the collapse in the value of sterling has actually been a pay rise. How that must pain him. But what do you think he'll do next? I mean, he's never betrayed the Tory party cause, right? So, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how these things work in the Tory party, but it's not implausible that he could get a seat in Westminster, right? That's The thing is, I don't... And Stephen, you'll know this better than me. My feeling is that he's not enormously popular with, it, with the Tory MPs. Or human beings. Um, or certainly with you. Uh, uh, he's not particularly popular with, uh, with with Tory MPs, not least because there are a couple of, re- of difficulties for Hannan and Carswell. One, that the people who actually made Vote Leave win, rightly in my view, regard them as people who thought it was a good idea to talk about trade when the central messages that they thought would make them win, and rightly so, were get rid of the immigrants, put more money into the public services in general and the NHS in particular. And now Douglas Carswell and Dan Hannan are both swanning around going, oh, it was me who, uh, I I was the architect of this. It's like, no, 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 you had to be hidden in a small room. And also, if you are a Conservative MP on the head-banging right of the party, you don't really like that their whole career is one big, long subtweet of you, right? So when Douglas Carswell goes, oh, I'm not like these grunt, these awful, grunty people who I nonetheless joined a party even further to their right, that's how pure and libertarian I apparently am, he's attacking the people who should be his natural allies. If you've been loyal to the Tory cause, you don't like him because he's a turncoat. And Hanan kind of has the thing where he's not hated as a turncoat, but his natural allies on the conservative right feel he's slagged them off a bit. But he is quite popular with activists. I think... Could they start a consultancy in which they advise other medium-sized countries on how to ruin their economy? Oh, or could they start, like, a really rubbish, like, detective agency, you know, and go around solving, like, sovereignty-related crimes? <laughs> they could They could deal with the, uh, the Schleswig-Holstein question. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, if, if anyone else would like to write in with further suggestions of the great post-Europe career that uh, these two fine men could do, you, you know where to find us, at Stephen KB and at Helen Lewis. I, I am interested in the question of why it is we all hate, particularly Daniel Hannan so much, because, like, the reason you asked me to do this silly column, the reason I embraced it, and the reason it's turned out there's quite a big market for it is because he is hated. He is absolutely loathed. By, by people on the sort of liberal left, despite the fact that he's not that important. He's not 
unpleasant to people. He's quite unerringly polite. What is it? Why no, do we... no, the politeness is what makes it worse because the politeness is the is is what makes him even we want to hurt him. But there's a really interesting theory that this blogger called Kathy Sierra came up with about why women get attacked on the internet. And she said it came originally out of you'd see in um, Apple forums, right, where people would get so into the thing of having to debunk Apple, like no Apple are rubbish. She called it the Kool Aid point, right? People become obsessed that other people have drunk the Kool Aid, and then they become monomaniacally obsessed with going no this thing that you like is terrible but people continue to like the thing which winds them up and that's exactly i think how we feel about daniel hannan right you go he's a mid-level mep with eighty thousand or whatever it is twitter followers like he's not you know king and yet people sort of people oh brexit intellectual daniel hannan and no matter how many times you point out his incredibly contradictory tweets people still go oh Brexit intellectual Daniel Hannan, and that's what drives yeah, you mad. I think it's the cargo cult intellectualism where he uses the forms of intellectualism, he uses a lot of classical references and long words and so on, but if you actually analyse his arguments, they're all complete nonsense. It's really like it's really easy to find something he said that you can prove wrong but in I, any given week. So I, I think I think I think those are all part of things, but it is also that I maintain and to regular listeners will feel free to be bored because I know I've said this before. I, I maintain that that whole kind of oh, I'm I'm more liberal than these people. I just keep happen to finding myself sharing platforms is worse, right? So Douglas Carswell's whole thing oh, we need to be optimistic libertarianism. By the way, I've joined a party whose leader goes, if you have immigrants, they'll come in here and infect us all with HIV. Yeah, and it's just this thing where it's just like feeling guilty appalling sentiments and saying nothing about it doesn't make you less culpable. It makes you more culpable. No. Or, or doing that thing about that, uh, I abhor racism. I, I, how could you? I have always publicly condemned racism. And you kind of think, yeah, but you're pretty happy. I mean, Matthew Paris's attack on Daniel Hannan was incredibly instructive. You know, he said that he's, he's a man who knows the tiger that he rides, right? And there is a feeling among those kind of liberal leavers, quote unquote, that they could have, you know, they could have probably 10% of the vote they could have got for their particular version of Brexit. So what they did was they coughed, you know, they just let everything else happen because they knew it was that they were happy to be on the same side oh, as actually, the other Actually, the other person, they're even more obscure, but the other liberal leader who's really started to mither me is um, Roland Smith, who was the whole, like, oh, we'll leave and go into the EEA, and now goes, oh, the problem is bitter Remainers. It's just like, no, and again, I'm aware that I'm doing a kind of Stephen's greatest hits of Euro wonkery, right? No, the EEA is an undemocratic way of going, the political class wants Norway to be in the EU, the voters don't, here's a special deal so we can all pretend that everyone's got their way, but actually the political class has got their way. The, the liberal can, can, that the, sounds quite good to me. Can we not? Can the, we not do that kind of fudge here? I'm, e I'm fine. Norway's doing quite well. The I mean. EEA leavers wanted to subvert the democratic process, right? And they wanted the Remainers to help them, right? That that is literally when they go, "Oh, the bitter Remainers." No, I'm sorry, I didn't want to join you in trying to overrule the referendum result. Right. Just like, but don't tell me that that was because I was being bitter or I wanted to overturn the result. The EEA would have been a obvious transgression of a referendum where we would get control of our borders. Like these people are disgusting. They're undemocratic freaks who wanted to, who, who believe that they should get to tell everyone what to do. Actually, the consensus deal I'm is Theresa May. I'm actually with, with John on the fine bit of being fine with the EEA. It sounds like Quite a good stitch. I just think I just think if we're going to overturn the referendum, like, like 
Why not go all the way? Uh, I'm I, fine with that too. I just, I don't care how we do it. I just want, like, I, I, I would like there to be a campaign to get Britain back into the European Union. And, you know, Hannon and Carswell, it took them 25 years, give or take. I'm in my mid-30s. I can survive to see that. You can't, though, because Donald Trump has just overturned all the climate change orders. So we'll be swimming to work by the time in 25 years. I will swim to work happily in the knowledge that on the day Britain re-enters the European Union with its tail between between its legs, Daniel Hannon and Douglas Carswell may well still be alive to see it. And imagine the looks on their little a faces. A celebratory yeast protein shake. You will raise them. Will look I'm like which, walnuts which, by that point. Just oh bold, yeah, ring. yeah. That's the, <laughs> the then then they'll be unappealing to um, look at. Sorry, that's that's. Did right. you did you see that that's awful picture? Sick. I bet they've got um, lovely legs. But, but to defend legs. my observance of the democratic process, which apparently is controversial in this podcast, I, I think Brexit's terrible. Why are we pretending it's not going to be terrible? But I think the 2015 like, election and the AV referendum was terrible. I just. I, no, I totally respect the referendum result. I just don't think you, that means you don't get to change your mind and have another referendum. Oh, no, I, I don't think, think we can just ignore it. I, I'm, I'm all for, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm completely for, yeah, I, I still think that, you know, the, the, the lesson of the 20th, of the back half of the 20th century is Britain does better off in the EU. My instinct is, is that won't change. But I think that the answer then is to, and this is like, if the, if the Liberal leavers want to be in the EEA, they need to fight and win a referendum on being in the EEA. Okay, right? well, but before, because we've now had like a 10-minute hate, and then we've had the 10-minute hate of the EEA. I really enjoyed how animated Stephen got about the EEA. I don't think there's ever been that level of passion for the EEA. It's pretty beautiful to see. Let's just, um, let's just talk about um, Article 50, which has been triggered this week. Uh, the letter that Theresa May handed over, I saw, did you see the hilarious headline from The Telegraph where they were like, it will be delivered in secret because there's worries that Remainers will try and sabotage the process. As it was, a man got out of a car, walked into a building, handed it to another man, totally drama-free. But Where Stephen... are all these Remainers trying to sabotage things? Because I would really like there to be some Remainers trying to sabotage you this. Also, I've not noticed any. You also, no shade to Tim Barrow, but... You know, like you a, a you, moderate rugby tackle could have could, could have, have brought him fight. down, right? But what did Stephen? What did the letter say? Because I read the first page of it that sort of said, "Of course, we're not leaving Europe. European values, everything is lovely. You know, don't. Uh, it's not you, it's us." So the the letter has kind of three audiences, right? And and three distinct purposes for each one of those audiences. There's the conservative right and the Brexit press, uh, where it's all about going. Don't worry, I'm a proper goth. So that's what a lot of the throat clearing and the X number of people, not me, voted to voted to leave than she she has to do every time. Then there's the please don't try and destroy our economy because it's it from Britain's perspective, it's in both Britain's political and economic interests, for obvious reasons, for there not to be a terrible recession and Britain to leave without a deal. It's in the EU's economic interests not to leave without a deal. Except, you know, however, the whether the question of whether or not it's in the EU 27's political interests for Britain to get a good deal is more finely balanced. And one of the things that May got spectacularly wrong with the Trump visit and in not, you know, knocking down some of her outriders early enough is not doing a good enough job of going, look, we're leaving, but we don't want to tear the house down as we walk out. So that was the other kind of thing, hence the kind of look, you know, we love you, you know, we hope you continue shared on. Values. Shared values. We want to have a, a close relationship. And then the third was setting out the terms of what May sees as Britain's future relationship with the EU. Um, so um, one of the things that did, I mean, you've been saying this for a while, definitely, is 
how much we're going to use our security clout in order as a kind of bargaining chip. I mean, which is a kind of weird threat to make. Like, we'll let you perish in terror attacks if you are mean to us. Uh, you know, it's quite a cold-blooded threat to, to make, really. But it is something that we have got on the table. I mean, it's not so much a kind of card or a threat, right? So so Britain does, does staff most of Europol. Uh, and a large chunk of its operational capacity is either through British personnel or equipment or et cetera, et cetera. So if that cooperation ends, right, it, it just doesn't exist in its current form. And the reality is, and the deal than, than May has actually done a more skillful job than you would necessarily notice from the kind of mood music coming from Downing Street, is of not ruling out paying massively over the odds to continue staffing Europol, defending the... You know, de- defending the Eastern Bloc from uh, from from a revanchist Russia, um, and participating in EU-wide research projects, which there are two interesting parts of that. One, if you look at what Norway does, they pay some money directly through Brussels, and it's agreed as part of the Visegrad grants. But they also pay other monies to the poorer members of the EU nation indirectly. You can easily see a deal where Britain spare- pays quite a lot of money in terms of the Polish economy size for defence capability building for the Eastern Bloc and pays over the odds to participate in Europol and EU-wide research programmes. That means that everyone kind of wins because Britain would get the standard of access it needed into the single market. Uh, The EU would have deterred nations from leaving because most nations which might want to leave are not as wealthy as Britain and wouldn't be able to afford to become net creditors into the EU. Um, so you can see how that works. There are still a couple of... I mean, we will have to presumably accept the scrutiny of the European courts in order for... And let's be honest, the vast majority of quote-unquote red tape, i.e. regulation, right? We can't start dunking our chicken in chlorine and whatever it is that the Americans do to their horrible meat. I mean, the red tape people have, have always been cruising for disappointment because when you trade with other with other countries, by definition, your regulation is set by whoever the strictest regulator than you are selling to, right? So if, if, if someone's capital requirements are higher, you, know, you can't really escape red tape unless you, you, you want to sell to no one anywhere in the world. That is kind of the plan, isn't it? I mean, that's what we're realistically heading towards, even if... Um, I mean, the other interesting thing in the letter is she does basically go, look, this idea of sovereignty, it's bollocks, isn't it, right? She's kind of returning to her very good pro-Remain speech, while coating it in this language of we're leaving, we're leaving, I love Brexit, 11 to 11. But the thing is, I, I feel like, now, yes, we have to accept that it's definitely happened. If it's now basically what that we're paying in order to reduce EU migration by tens of thousands, that seems like a massive, massive waste of everybody's time. Yeah, but Brexit's but, a silly idea. But, I mean, but in a way, I've kind of come to embrace, like, on the rationale of possible things that go all the way through, like, you know, massive recession you know, war with Russia, whatever. Actually, massive waste of everybody's time is kind of... I've now... I've adjusted my expectations so that that's kind of okay. But it worries me, though, because I think if you look at the experience of Scotland and the constitutional question there, it does mean that you do miss out on a lot of scrutiny about, for example, public services, right, when the conversation's only about this kind of big constitutional stuff. Yeah, and the government has done a lot of fairly awful stuff, you know, 
Well, there's PIP cut debates this week, for example, you know, there's some of the welfare stuff and school funding formulas, you know, which actually Jeremy Corbyn picked up, I think, on uh, PMQs. This kind of stuff does feel sort of strangely sidelined. John, if you had to be stuck in a lift forever with either Douglas Carswell or Daniel Hannan, which one would you pick? Describe this lift for me. Can I realistically climb out for a panel in the roof, hack my way through the cables so that we fall to our deaths together? No, no. You've got to be alive. I, I, I don't, don't make me do this. <laughs> I, I suspect, I, I can't put my finger on why, but I think I, in person I would probably find Hannah more irritating. I think there's something like... Car, oh, Carswell is kind of much more open when he just doesn't like someone or something. Whereas, like, Hannah is, like, constantly, sort of, you know, friends, a reminder that we should be nice to our enemy. Like, and, it's, and it's nonsense. It's I also think that, nonsense. Don't you think Daniel Hannah would, would, if you said, I can't, I need to, I can't deal this anymore, he would choke you you to death like I, he would I think he's got the steel of a man who would say okay I will euthanise you that's that's what you want I do think the kind of natural end point for the column is, is the two of us like having a wrestling match on the top of the Atomium in Brussels and then falling to our deaths so I, I think I would pick Dan Hannon right because he has other interests um, a, a long time ago when I was at the Telegraph I would occasionally have to sub their 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 copy and I, I preferred Dan Hannon's so I'm just going how many just, columns do you think he's going to be writing in this lift <laughs> who knows who knows what the Wi-Fi is like in the lift but um, I, I just um, I just feel you could talk to him about other things and I think Dan Hannon does clearly at least have like a sense or a sense of humour not well, necessarily that is true because Douglas Carswell has blocked me on Twitter for making from laughing at him for saying that the sun controlled the tides no I can't remember if it was, it was something else anyway that, no, I, that I, was I, it, yeah. I, I mocked yeah. him about oh no it was about whether or not he when he because he ran against Tony Blair in Sedgefield right I was like well you didn't give up your political career after losing horribly there that's what he blocked me for whereas Dan Hannon very classily and I'm, I guess probably also driving irritation with him has never responded to the column no when I wrote a thing about Carswell, he did sort of retweet it in a mocking fashion, which is like, thanks for the traffic, Douglas. Um, and I had this conversation with Ian Hislop about the fact that Private Eye writes all the time about Murdoch and Murdoch never, ever, ever responds. And he said, as a satirist, that is the most irritating thing that someone can do. It's it's not just that he's never responded to me. I do know a couple of people who've now asked him about this column and he kind of smiles and says, oh, it's a complicated question and changes the subject. So he's just clearly got a policy of never engaging with it at all, which is infuriating. Maybe he loves you. Maybe. I mean, this is why I don't want to be trapped in the lick with him. <laughs> I also just Who think- knows where... It, I mean, that's the other place this could end, isn't oh, it? Oh, I, I mean- ship you and yeah, Hannon together. That's... Yeah. Let's leave that. Sorry, Stephen. Help us. Help us escape from that. Um, so, I also noticed this week that all all Brexit ultras and all Uber Remainers, kind of all of the, no, I don't care, we don't need another vote, we're just going to ignore the public people... Um, look like they are the same characters in a in a in a hair loss commercial. So you take away their the magnificent bouffant of AC Grayling, and underneath you find Dan Hannon. Yeah, or Douglas Castle, right? They do all literally look like you know. I used to have receding hair. Then I tried the overturning European. the referendum result. Do you think this is why I'm so passionately on the Remain side? Because I do have my you do have full hair. Locks, yeah. yeah. Well, it's a theory. But it's no worse than any of the other theories. And also there's a whole lot of weird phallic stuff happening with Brexit, right? All this stuff about the big yacht and the big blue passports and then the sun beaming something onto the white cliffs of Dover. It's all, there's a slightly sort of odd masculinity about all of it. 
But let's leave everybody with the image of you and Dan Hannon locked in a lift for eternity. So thanks for joining us in the catacomb, John. Can I stop writing my column now? No. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And now, paying a rare visit to the podcast catacomb is our editor, Jason Cowley, as well as our regular guest here, uh, our political editor, George Eaton. Jason, we're doing a special issue this week. Um, it's got quite an arresting cover. It says, Wanted an Opposition. What was the idea behind the whole issue? Well, I was sitting in my office a couple of weeks ago. I think it was the 13th of March. And I was watching um, Nicola Sturgeon's speech at Butte House when she announced that... Um, she wanted to hold a second referendum on Scottish independence. And she said in a throwaway line that the Labour Party had collapsed. And one hears this all the time, and it passes unchallenged. And then when um, Philip Hammond was delivering his first budget, he made a little joke about the last Labour government being the last Labour government. And this sense of fatalism and passivity, really, is beginning to bother me. And talking to Labour MPs, they agree with Nicola Sturgeon. They feel there's no way they can be in power until 2030 and maybe 2035. And this seems to me a ridiculous situation to, to find themselves in. And George, it's, I mean, from the people that you talk to in the lobby, it seems that Labour MPs have adopted a strategy of kind of put your head down and hope, you know, and like, I'll come out again in a couple of years' time when things might be a bit more favourable. Is there anything, are they doing things apart from that sort of secretly or on the sly? Yes, there is quite a lot now going on underneath the radar. Um, so one of the things they've done is to relaunch the Tribune group, which was the traditional bastion of, of the soft left. And there's Labour Together, there's uh, Redshift. Um, so there is this sort of, people have always said the advantage of opposition is it gives you time to think and they are doing some thinking. Then, of course, you've had those like Yvette Cooper and Hilary Benn who are now chairing select committees, holding the government to account through those means. But with this tactic, and, and they call it the give him enough rope tactic, give Corbyn enough rope to hang himself, they recognise the, the tension, which is that um, the, the longer you stand back, potentially the harder it is to, to regain control and the harder it becomes to, to recover because the road back to power is getting longer if you, if you look at Labour's, Labour's poll ratings. So I think the view that most take is that Jeremy Corbyn will still have to be replaced as, as leader before the next general election, particularly if it's, if it's 2020. But at the moment, it's this, this odd stalemate where the left can't, can't change their leader, even though, even though some of them would quite like to, because uh, they recognise they wouldn't be able to get the nominations for a successor at the moment. So that's all the stuff about the McDonnell Amendment to change the nomination threshold down from 15% of MPs to 5 Jason, you're, uh, you, were, you, know, you interviewed Theresa May. You've been interested by her rhetoric about some of the stuff about state interventionism, some of her talk about, um, you know, I mean, she talked in her first speech in Downing Street about the gender pay gap, about, you know, racial disparities in policing. What effect is this lack of opposition having on her? Well, there's a, a I mean, much of, some of May's um, language I find very distinctive and actually extremely interesting. I mean, she speaks about the common good and social responsibility. But what, it seems to me at present that the discourse is being dominated by the what one might call the kind of Brexit right. So the the 
monomaniacal Eurosceptics, you know, we know who they are, but also the libertarian right. May's not a libertarian, but nevertheless, the libertarian right seems to me in the ascendancy. And that actually bothers me as someone who isn't a libertarian and very much believes in the role of government to do good, actually. And one also is concerned about the discourse in the press. Our press, unlike, say, for example, the great American newspapers, which are essentially liberal newspapers, um, our newspapers, most of them seem to be stridently right-wing. I, I exclude the Times, which is, I think is a fine newspaper, but on the whole, they're stridently right-wing. That, that bothers me as someone who edits a liberal title. And I'm beginning to wonder, you know, who speaks for liberal England, um, liberal Britain? I almost said Liberal England then, because, of course, the SNP would say, well, we speak for Liberal Scotland. But the role of the SNP is to defend the Scottish interest. But who's speaking for the Liberal British interest? And in this issue we have this week, you know, a remarkable issue in so many ways, we've mobilised a lot of forces, both in support of liberalism, but also, again, to be frank, against the incompetence of the Jeremy Corbyn leadership. I think one of the things that comes through quite strongly in it is the desire for liberals to tell better stories, right? To say that Nigel Farage has a, a story that he tells about what England is and what yeah. Britain is and what he thinks it should be. And actually the other side haven't necessarily kind of done that, that work. But George, among um, among MPs, you know, we've had contributions by Dan Jarvis and Chukramuna outlining their versions. Who is doing interesting thinking on the left? Um, I think Lisa Nandy is someone who's thought quite deeply about Labour's predicament. I, I spoke to her for my piece and, and she says... There's this um, concern about the gap between Labour's uh, metropolitan liberal voters and its more working class conservative voters. But that's existed throughout Labour's existence. And, and what do they have in common? Well, they're, they're both have generally voted, voted Labour. And what Labour needs to do is to find new ways of, of bridging the gap between them. It's not an easy task, but it's one I think that a more accomplished leader, a more imaginative leader could do. And I think what a lot of Jeremy Corbyn supporters are feeling increasingly is they're not sure what the vision is, that the competence, competence aside, it, it's not actually always clear how, how Labour would change the country if it was in power. That was a complaint we heard a lot under, under Ed Miliband and it hasn't gone away under, under Jeremy Corbyn. And then, of course, where you do find optimism on, on, among Liberals is among the Liberal Democrats. And it's, it's ironic that Brexit, which they were the party most opposed to, has in some ways been the saving of them because they now have a clear purpose. And, and Nick Clegg said to me, I spoke to him about the idea of a new party, which some are interested in. He didn't rule that out, but he says what you need, first of all, is the ideas. The ideas have to lead the way. And I think that's right. And um, he's but, George, also, but George, isn't it mm. also that the Lib Dems and, and Labour to a lesser extent, but also um, the, the Liberal commentariat in London, they, they, they've been wrong footed by what one might call the post-Liberal turn in our politics. Do you accept that? Yes, and I they think they weren't prepared for it. I mean, there were some on Labour. I'm talking about the Blue Labour faction: John Cruddis, Morris Glassman, Jonathan Rutherford. They un they understood the forces at play, but many on the left and the Liberal left didn't. Yes, and arguably there needs to be a reckoning with that, rather than simply slotting back into into reciting traditional arguments, which certainly some Liberals have done. But I also think that Liberals have to have more self-confidence at times and to be more assertive. I mean, David Runciman made a good point in, in, in his piece when he said, if the referendum result had been the other way around, we'd know immediately what, who was speaking for leave, what they wanted. They would be out there demanding a second referendum. But Liberals are somehow more reserved and, and more cautious. And actually, look, the Brexiteers won. And I don't think it's just because of this, this post-Liberal shift, but that's obviously down to it. But it's also... 
they had the self-confidence and assertiveness that made people believe in them and, and believe in their promises. Yeah, I had. We, I went to a thing that Frank Luntz, you know, the Republican pollster was saying, you know, American liberals have got to ask themselves these really deep, deep questions after the loss of, uh, of Hillary Clinton. And I kind of thought, well, that, yes, I, I think that is true. But I actually am not sure that the Republicans are asking themselves deep questions about, you know, a popular vote that they lost, a healthcare reform that they kind of don't go through. I think there is a temptation a lot of the time on for liberals to always feel that they have to be the ones that have to, like, anxiously row over everything that they believe rather than just saying, well, look, actually, you might disagree with me, but this is why I think this. But isn't it being part, <laughs> exactly, but isn't that part of what a- being a liberal is you you're, you you tolerate you're, intolerance you're you tolerate other, self-doubt exactly yeah. exactly it's part of the it's part of the liberal temperament isn't it to 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 give voice to others or yeah, to allow others so. to to speak freely um you know it's a fa- fantastically interesting moment this in in our politics it's the week um in which uh, the prime minister will invoke article 50 i don't like the word trigger but here we are and we're we're playing our part with our special issue. Yeah, and I think I can honestly say there is literally every man and his dog in this issue. I mean, I've edited the Vox Box and we've got such an fascinating array of people and actually some really surprising voices from the right as well. I think there is a recognition across the political spectrum, also from people like Michael Heseltine and Chris Patton. Yeah, but also voices is, from the radical left too, yeah. Paul Mason, Billy Bragg and others. I mean, it's not just um, a coalition of new statesman interests. It's, 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 a, it's a much larger yeah. gathering together of, of people. Well, well, and people will be able to find out all about that by buying the issue, which is in all good shops now. And now it's time for a section we call... You Ask Us. Oh, OK. Um, this question is from Rob Hunter. I think it's Hunter, and I'm just going to power through. Rob Hunter, who has asked us, obviously, our our views on various liberal Brexiters have been made clear in this podcast and indeed in many others, but we don't really talk about the the glorious few, the the Labour leave-backing MPs. Ah, the Lexiters. Yeah, so here's my thing. I once called um, Gisela Street, in the nicest possible way, a one-woman Potemkin village, because I think that um, you definitely get this from Tim Shipman's All Out War, that they were very keen to put her forward in the debates, right, to make it look, and this is one of my problems with balance, um, was that it made it look as if there were equal numbers of Labour MPs on both sides. Because she and she was, you know, she's a nice woman and a good debate performer. And the fact that she's originally German, I think, definitely helped it to, to kind of take detoxify some of the side of that argument. But the fact is, there were very, very few. What there were about twelve people in the PLP, I would say. So my problem is, I find it slightly difficult because their involvement with Vote Leave, actually, the same way with Douglas Carswell, then being in UKIP, actually, weirdly helped Vote Leave get the nomination right because they could make the case that they were truly a kind of pan-global multi-party effort which gave them the edge over Leave.eu and I think that if Leave.eu had got the designation I don't think maybe they would have still won the referendum I think it would have been a very different referendum campaign Yeah, I mean I think so I think that's true I think so I have different feelings about the different members of that Brexit uh, backing I think it's 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 twelve known, and then then probably about fourteen, including various people. Jeremy Corbyn, uh, indeed, who uh, who we kind of all know were in one place, but for various reasons felt that they they should keep quiet. Um, so I, in order of of lack of patience, the kind of 
Ronnie Campbell, it's a capitalist club, Lexit thing. It's just like, I'm sorry, if step one of your plan is first Theresa May becomes prime minister, then the Labour vote is torn in half. I mean, what is step three of step your three, plan? Step three, full socialism yeah, just, I mean, it's it, it just... It's just one of those things where, even if you think that a successful left-wing government needs to leave the EU, it's probably a good idea to have the successful left-wing government in office to manage the exit from the EU, rather than doing it this way around. The the sovereignty people, I have the same feeling I have to their, of them about right-wing people who talk about sovereignty. I do just think it is a myth in a global economy, but yeah. Kate Hoey got on an actual boat with Nigel Farage. I find that quite difficult to deal with. I mean, Kate Hoey, I just kind of feel like... And this is where I always kind of depart from the people who go, oh, the, the PLP have the mandate of 19 million, million voters. It's like, I mean, sort of, right? But Some, Vauxhall is not a wildly leave constituency. Yeah, I, yeah, and I also just kind of feel like people sort of voted for someone to... I think I just kind of feel like... like Kate Hoey has has gone out of her way to make the Labour Party's life incredibly difficult while owing her career to the Labour Party. Similarly with Douglas Carswell, right, who has rode various uh, people while while knifing them. Cameron, Farage, probably Howard, I imagine, he said something unhelpful to him in the 12 months that they were both in the Commons together. Um, and you just kind of think, if you care so much about it, see if you can get elected on your own. Don't sit inside the tent peeing on everyone else's feet. So, are there any other groups apart from the Lexiters, the Hoeys, the Sovereignties people? Um, and then, to be honest, I just really like Gisela. I feel guilty about it. I'm aware that's a massive double standard because I'm going, Hannon, terrible. Oh, Gisela, she's all right. But Gisela, she's all right. Yeah, but the thing is, that's why they put her in a lot of debates, is that she is she comes across really well because she is somebody who is pleasant to deal with and talk to, right? Yeah, I, like I said, I'm, I'm aware. Like, I, this is definitely my problematic fave. Okay, well, there we go. Uh, problematic faves and some people that we are unproblematic... No, problematic unfaves. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with Helen Lewis and me, Stephen Bush. Our music is by Devil by the Devil and is licensed under Creative Commons. Our podcast is produced by India Burke and mixed by James Shields. If you'd like to have even more of me in your life, sign up to my free morning email, Morning Call. Just search New Statesman Morning Call, Stephen Bush Morning Call, New Statesman, whatever. It's brilliant. It will change your life. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.